Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Ian Rickson. I'm a theatre director. And welcome to my podcast, What I Love. In all the time I've worked in the theatre, I've been lucky to meet some extraordinary artists. In this series, I speak with some of them in the silence of an empty theatre stage and ask them about three things that they love, a song, a film, and a piece of writing. I'm looking to discover why we especially cherish certain things and how we reveal ourselves through the things we love. Kay Tempest seems not of this century. Their roll call of creative output, poetry, novels, plays, songs, performance, brings to mind time of the ancients, unbound by the limits of any one artistic practice. Growing up in South London, Kay found inspiration in hip-hop, myth and modern poetry. Those influences have bled into their work, which many of us first got to know from the gods and monsters of brand new ancients. It's chest-thumping poetry performed on stage, accompanied by a furious live jazz score, and winning Kay the esteemed Ted Hughes Award in 2012. I met Kay in the summer 2020 on the stage at the Harold Pinter Theatre in London. Just after we recorded our conversation, Kay came out as non-binary, changing their name from Kate to Kay and their pronouns. So here we go, capturing a unique moment in time. Well, I'm here with Kate Tempest, who I first met, I think, in 2012, when she was doing previews of her epic play, Brand New Ancients, and I stood in the queue for my book to be signed. And I think like a kind of super fan, I said, can I kind of hang out with you and just help in any way you need? And started following you around the country, giving you some notes and feedback. And then I've joined other things like band rehearsals, poetry, gigs. And then I got her to write a play. I gave her this really old play by Sophocles called Philoctetes. And we stood in a room with all these army veterans because it's mm. a play about trauma and grievance. And it's poignant being on a stage because if the pandemic hadn't have happened two weeks ago, we would have opened that play on yeah. the Olivier stage. I'm just so pleased to be talking to you about things you love. Thanks, Ian. It's funny because when you stood in that queue and met me after Brand New Ancients, at that time a couple of years before I just started getting into the position where I could go and watch plays I was getting work in the theatre writing different things and I was starting to get really interested in trying to see plays and a friend of mine took me to your play Jerusalem a couple of years mm -hmm. before that it must mm -hmm. have been yeah 2009 maybe yeah and that was the first play that changed my life you know that was the first time seeing theatre where I really understood 
what it was, mm. what it could be, what it was for. And I had, I had such a profound experience watching that play with my good friend Evie Manning. And then later, the only other play that has had that similar kind of impact on me was your Endgame. Because I was crazy about Beckett. I was mm. crazy about Beckett. I went to see that play not even knowing it was directed by the same person that directed Jerusalem. I just, I found out Endgame was on and I managed to go. And so my only contact with transcendental experiences in the theatre had happened while watching your plays. So when you came over and you were like, hi, I'm Ian. <laughs> so like, for me, it was like, this is the guy that knows the secrets of these plays that I saw. Do you know what I mean? Mm. It's been amazing to become friends and learn a bit about the mythology behind the theatre for you. Mm. There's so much to it. There is, and when you talk about that, it makes me think, does a book or a play or a gig or a poem choose you, find you, mm. or do you find it? How willful are we about what we find, consume, watch? Mm. And how much does the thing actually attach itself to you because it's what you need? I think in 2012, I needed... a relationship with someone like you someone shamanic who was drawing upon things that really fire me up and I think there's a might sound sentimental a kind of geographical connection we're both from a very particular yeah. part of southeast London yeah. and what's that been like in your life does the culture choose you or do you like a pioneer go out and find <laughs> what you want to consume I feel like it can be both it would be nice to think that it it's looking for you all the time. But there's definitely moments when I've sat through things and I'm like, this is not feeding me. <laughs> this is like, yeah. this is not nourishment. Yeah. But maybe that's more when I've been looking for it, but I've not prepared myself properly to receive. When I discovered a passion for music, for like hip hop especially, when I discovered that I was crazy about it, I wanted to listen to everything that I could find. So yes. in that moment, I was actively trying to find out as much as I could about what the different schools of thought were like what the east coast sound was what the west coast sound was like what the uk sound was yeah who are the wells of inspiration that mm. all these other rappers have drawn inspiration mm. from i wanted to find out as much as i could mm. so there's definitely been moments where i've avidly gone searching and there's been other moments where things have just dropped into my existence yeah i've sometimes entertained the fantasy that if you were to go home with someone's supermarket trolley Mm. and consume all the food and the things they've chosen, would you kind of turn into them? <laughs> and I've been doing my cultural version of that intake because I've just been kind of marinating in your three choices. Yeah. And where it's left me is it doesn't make me turn into you, but it makes me see the world through your eyes and it makes me feel closer to you. I want to go backwards chronologically with the three things you've brought to us today yeah, cool the thing on screen that yeah. you have selected is a netflix series called the last dance for those of you who haven't seen it and i recommend everyone watches it and you don't have to like basketball to watch it it's a series about the last season the last dance where michael jordan and his team the chicago bulls are together mm. and it's framed by the coach Phil Jackson who's a kind of guru figure that we've got one year it's going to be the last dance mm. I loved it so much I was so pleased you chose it because I'd already seen it and it gave me mm. the chance to watch some of it again 
Why did that come up as a offering today? Uh, I suppose because it's something that I've encountered recently. It's just on my mind. It's just yeah. it's present. The psychology of the performance element yeah. of it all is really interesting to me. How all of those players deal differently with what they have to do each night and mm. all of them having to have this different relationship with, with Michael Jordan, mm. but this like unreal superstar talent and yet they're all part of a team. Mm. And like as the series progresses and you get these little insights into the different kind of more minor players in that team, yeah. how it must have felt to suddenly receive the ball in the last minute. Yeah. And like Michael has deemed that you, you yeah. must take the shot because he's going to be covered by all these defenders. So now it's your chance. Yeah. It's like just that, just the idea of that happening. Like imagining myself in that position of like suddenly after craving an opportunity probably for the whole season, yeah. now it's your one chance. Yeah. And like how, would a, how would anyone handle that pressure and that opportunity the stakes being that high and yeah. like you know the ball goes in the net it's yeah. Like, it's yeah. Just like, <laughs> yeah you're alluding to a moment where the Chicago Bulls have a new coach and this coach Phil Jackson starts introducing meditation and Native American philosophy and mm. they train without the ball and there's a kind of exchange between him and Michael Jordan. You know, there's no I in team. Yeah, but there's an I in win. And um, <laughs> Phil tries to liberate Michael from holding everything on behalf of the team, of being a one-man team, of working harder than anybody else. And he says, let's try and democratise the team. Let's empower more players. And that'll be good for you, Michael. Mm. And then at the climax of that season, there's like a timeout. And Michael is asked who's not getting the ball and it's this kind of person that's not a superstar it's yeah. John Paxson a kind of white skinny guy and Michael passes to him endlessly and they win yeah. and for me as a director that was just such a beautiful moment that you can have absolute egotistic individual brilliance but when it's encoded in a team yeah. you're unstoppable and I've watched you on tour in this analogy you're Michael Jordan uh, knackered, exhausted. We see Michael Jordan in this series yeah. uh, play a match when his dad's just died. Mm. He's given a poison pizza. Mm. He's got food poisoning. He still plays. And I've seen you go out like that. <laughs> and something, however horrendous in the chaos, can drop in. Yeah. And I wonder whether that's part of your empathy with the programme as well. Yeah, I mean, for sure. Like, Definitely, I'm always looking for examples of other people that that experience the high stakes of that of like no matter what this thing has to happen and the feeling of service to this talent that you have or the this commitment you've made to this um craft that you've invested so much in obviously the element of there being an audience there and people that have invested their own money in coming to this experience and you have that on you as well like for him and for that team it's different because when people are supporting a team that you are embodying their hopes for so much more mm. than just that game. Like, it's transformative what happens. But for sure, that thing of watching somebody go through things that I have experienced in very small ways was so comforting to me. I'm, I'm always fascinated by stories of um, performance against the odds. Also, I love discovering the stories behind sports people. I feel like an affinity with it. Because you draw from the... 
Tyson Furies and the Ronnie O'Sullivans and yeah. the Michael Jordans because really they're do. these sort of totemic figures who've come through such adversity. Especially the snooker players and boxers because it's like an individual sport and sometimes when you go out there, when I go out there, it's, it's me against myself, it's me against my mind. Yeah. It's like, am I going to be able to fall back on my technique or is tonight going to be the night when it falls apart? A couple yeah. of times I've been on stage and really intense things have happened psychologically. I've had panic attacks on stage and just had to get through it, just had to keep going one word in front of the other. And that when I watch Ronnie O'Sullivan at the snooker table, the way that he has his system, the way that he works to get those balls in the pockets, for me it just it feels like mm. the closest pictorial example mm. of what's happening in my brain mm. when, when I'm facing 75 minutes of text and also what you've got to go through emotionally to bring, to bring those words into the room and to bring the characters to life out of your own body. And, mm. But then the thing about Michael Jordan, like the toll it takes on him is huge, but mm. also this is his this is his great pride as well. Mm. You know, he's obviously obsessed with winning. You know, you see him playing like penny up the wall mm. with like anyone he can play with. <laughs> like he can't take a minute's break mm. from competitive sport. I find that kind of interesting and you have that a person needs to be that driven, but that that in itself will take a toll out of a person. And then you've got somebody much more laid back like Rodman who just doesn't have that same like kind of irrational demand mm. to win at all costs. But he must have, I mean, he must have it in him as a professional sports player, but his whole, his whole theory just seems to be like a more natural thing of like, I know that I can do this. I've got all the skills and the talent. I've worked really hard. I know what I'm doing. Mm. Actually, what I need to get myself into the space is to be completely free, yeah. released. Yeah. He goes out, he has to go out to Las Vegas and just, you know, have a party and just get high for three days. That's what he needs to do to come back and be able to face the pressure. But the triumvirate of Scotty Pippin, Dennis Rodman and Michael Jordan, when Pippin's injured, yeah. Rodman puts all the partying to one side and so supports Michael yeah. and like plays out of his skin in the most egoless, supportive way. And then Scotty comes back and then immediately Dennis goes on a bender. And yeah, he's, yeah, he's like, oh, thank God he's back. For me as well, like the fact of that team being such a recognisable, mythological team, to understand more about the coach and to understand yeah. more about what was actually happening for them and yeah. the way that you go back to the first season when Michael joined the team. It's just beautiful storytelling and so much of the iconography is familiar to me because yeah. I grew up, I was born in 85, I grew up in the 90s. Like, yeah. Just something as simple as like the Jordan ones, you know, the Air Jordans. Like for me, the connotation of the footwear is so deeply embedded in me. Yeah, there's a familiarity to what I'm looking at that makes it easier to yeah. follow. So while the 12 year old Kate was ogling a pair of Air Jordans <laughs> walking around Lewisham, <laughs> I got my first ever gig in America, and impudently. I made it a condition of the job that I got courtside <gasps> tickets to watch the Chicago Bulls in 1996. And the thing that really <laughs> struck me, my son was like in Space Jam and yeah. I knew what Michael Jordan was as an athlete. But what you can do when you're watching the whole game live is you can see him in the timeouts and how still he was. I mean, he was like a panther in a tree, meditatively still, 
the towel over their head. He wasn't bantering with the other players. He seemed to have a renewable, regenerative quality. Then I started following the guy who did the meditation with him. He's a guy called George Mumford, who says there are certain people through their practice who in the eye of the hurricane can find the blue sky. Mm. So there you are going on stage in Leeds or somewhere and you've done too many gigs and somehow amidst all the chaos, you can get calmer and pull on something. Yeah, wow. I can see him. It's so beautifully described. And actually it makes, it gives me this feeling of awe. That's another reason I really enjoy watching this programme, to watch how somebody marshals their own existence that way and has such complete knowledge over what they need to do in order to get themselves ready for what they need to do. Yeah. I find it so inspiring. It makes me feel like a renewed energy to improve, yeah. to get better, to be able to channel more openly. And The thing about in the middle of the chaos, you know, in the eye of the storm, seeing the blue sky, I absolutely feel like I've gone on stage before after hearing the news of a friend killing himself mm. and I literally had just got that news about two hours before he had been in my house literally just before leaving for tour you know and then that was it you go on stage and you're what happens is is that you're processing through language that you've said a hundred mm. times suddenly the power of poetry is that mm. it means it means something new every time you put mm. those words together. Like something new happens to meaning. It's influenced by what you've been through, by what the people in the audience have been through, by whatever's happening like globally, locally. The thing about language is it's a gate. It is not the destination. Yeah. It's, it's the thing you pass through to get yeah. to sentiment. So because of that, you never really know what's going to happen mm. or how a particular thing is going to hit you till you get halfway through the set and you're like, wow, tonight it's about this. And tonight or that night, every single word was about death and was about pain and, and actually it became about releasing the spirit of my friend yeah. and acknowledging that they were not in as painful a place as they had been. And, and then suddenly, like, this thing that had been exhausting me before, it was like I was singing his spirit into another place. Yeah. It, was, it was something that I, I could do that I can't do in normal life. Yeah. And it actually gives me an opportunity to process my emotions in a way that I don't have any other yeah. access because it, it's almost happening in spite of me. But what was so weird about it is that that particular gig, it wasn't like... It, like sometimes I do these gigs and everything's set up for it mm. to be transcendental. You're in a beautiful mm. space like this. You Sunset know. or something. Yeah, exactly. Right. Everybody's there with the same um, willingness to kind of travel together. But this gig was not that. It was like live in Leeds. It mm. was like all these different bands were playing in all mm. these different pubs. You get one wristband and you get to like pop between venues. So it was like a noisy, rowdy, drunk crowd. Mm. We were in like a student university kind of venue. Mm. There was no like romantic stage mm. and seating. It was really like basic, like it used to be. There was no private dressing room. Everyone was just in a room together beforehand. So of all the places mm. for me to like suddenly be finding myself like processing a shocking moment, mm. I thought it was going to be one of those gigs where you just get through mm. it. But actually what happened was, yeah, it revealed something to me. It, it wow. shows itself. It's like it, as soon as you stop worrying about whether they're feeling it or not, mm. as soon as you stop trying to take responsibility, which mm. you've taught me actually a lot over the years, stop trying to take care of them and just do this thing like, like the micro analogy is good. It's like he... He has this responsibility mm. to himself and to the audience that have come to watch him, but actually he is going into himself 
to make sure that he's just ready to do what yeah. he's there to do. Obviously, there's an element of him that wants to give them what they want. He wants to jump six foot high in the air so everyone thinks mm. he's an angel. But that that naturalness will come mm. out of him knowing that he's in the place mm. where he's serving his own compass. Yeah. And that's something that you've taught me a lot over the years. Because if you try and take them with you, if you try and make them a part of your healing or make yourself a part of theirs, then you're just kind of getting in the way of it. You become heavy-handed. Yeah. The thing becomes like unwieldy, you know, yeah. it doesn't fly. It's beautiful to hear you talk about performance. And I mean, we'll come to William Blake later, but because he talks a lot in the Marriage of Heaven and Hell about kind of release and flow. What's mm. it been like having four months of not performing, not having those epiphanies and shifting the stagnant water? Mm. Hmm. Uh, to be honest, it's been amazing. Yeah. I love performance. I love what happens. I respect it. I feel like a little bit awestruck by it, by what happens. But I'm really glad to have had some time off it yeah. because it's been constant since... It's been 20 years, pretty much constant. I've had like a few breaks of a few months here and there, but definitely since the touring, since the album cycles and the touring and starting with Brand New Ancient. So that was 2012, it's now, yeah, it's eight years. Mm. So I'm finding that I'm, I'm writing again, like I was writing before yeah. Brand New Ancients. And what, what happened was I was doing all this writing, then suddenly I was touring like crazy, but all of the writing that I had been doing before that all kicked off was mm. like carrying me through. Mm. And that led to like six or seven different projects that were published while I was on the road. And I feel like this is that time again. This is like the second stage of that moment where I'm, I'm going to be generating all this stuff that's going to mm. be seeing me through the next mm. seven years. And maybe watching this myth of Michael yeah. in lockdown and you referred a couple of times to the toll, yeah. that pursuit and you could say in The Last Dance it's that you know the pursuit of black excellence where yeah. you've got to fight twice as hard to get half as far yeah. and what was very moving for me was the one moment Michael cried oh. was when he came up with well I might be admired, I might be celebrated but I'm not necessarily liked. Mm. And he said cut when he was saying, yeah, okay, people don't see me as a nice guy. And it feels like you're tuning into the myth of Michael. You've had a stop through lockdown, which has stopped that uh, hamster wheel mm. toll on you. And it's given you that sort of soft time to really just be and be with the spirit of your writing. Mm. It's amazing that moment when he is crying. I, th I feel like we have always wanted to hear stories of, of excellence, of greatness, like, but then when it's actually a real, this is a real man, you know, these are real people. Yeah. They really did this, like Scotty Pippin, you know, the tragedy of his contract where he was like the second best player in the entire NBA and he was getting like the 116th highest salary. Mm. It, this must have been what it felt like for people when they were hearing stories about heroes and gods who they believed were real because they would have been a part of life. Yeah. It's the, it felt like I was just sat there and somebody was just telling me these stories of what people have come through, yeah. you know? And it fed into a rewrite, I think, you were just about to do on the classical play. Yeah, absolutely. We're working on because you said, 
oh my goodness, Michael Jordan is Odysseus. Yeah. That really helps me look after that character yeah. in, well, you've renamed the play Paradise. How wonderful to find, well, it's so much in your work, isn't it? To find the mythological and the archetypal in the everyday. Yeah, but the way that it's always happened is that whatever I read or listen to or partake in, it's so present in me. I absorb it so fully that, of course, it's everywhere. It comes out in every exchange. I don't separate the things out. It's not no. like, oh, I'm, I'm reading this classical myth and that's different to how it feels to walk down the high street yeah. and engage with people. Yeah. It all feels the same. Like yeah. The way I experience people, story, character, experience is like with the same kind of level of like almost bursting fullness. Yeah. So then with Odysseus, who... like. In our play, I have struggled with Odysseus probably the most of all of the characters because I'm trying to have the empathy mm. ray like mm. shone on him for mm. a bit because he kind of slipped into like the tyrannical mm. general sending his poor soldier out to do a dishonest task. Anyway, like watching the way that Michael discussed the need to win, it really rung true because Odysseus has to have that same the same win at all costs yeah. because he's in charge of an army yeah. but then I couldn't draw the links between the Greek Odysseus who doesn't really have cultural resonance it's quite hard to transplant a Greek character who is fully formed for a time that is not our own mm. and be like how can I create the same dilemma for this person mm. when all of the contexts have changed and then just suddenly I'll be yeah I was just watching Michael Jordan just being like that is it that's Odysseus that's the burden of Odysseus you know yeah. I could just see it in his body language. Also, the way his hands move. Yeah. His hands are vast because yeah. of the basketball. I don't know if, he, if you noticed, but there's something about his index finger and his thumb. There's this movement to them when he's just sitting around, when he's smoking his cigar and when he's taking his drink. Yes. And you just think about the relationship he must have, with th particularly those two fingers on his hand. because It it's makes like me... It's like the sun out of the sky and dumping yes. it in the hoop. Like. Incredible. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And when you mention the Greeks there, the only reference I had for the next thing that you've brought to the table, who is Serpent with Feet and his incredible track, Four Ethers, which I really want to say to everybody, watch the video, first of all. Because in the video, I mm. thought, this is Dennis Rodman. It's like a really big black guy with makeup and a dress, mm. a kind of Theresius-like incredible gender fluidity singing this song about being felt and recognized and seen what an amazing orchestral dazzlingly bold p 
piece of music. Yeah, Suck on My Feet. He's there, an incredible artist. I think that my first encounter with them was pretty special. I was at a party dancing with two really, really close friends of mine, and there was a DJ called Arka, who's an incredible producer, works with some incredible artists, and it was a birthday party, and Arka was on the decks, and they just played this song. And, like, you know, I was dancing, everything was amazing, the music was amazing. Suddenly this song comes on, and I'm like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> yeah. What is that? Like, what is that? What is this? Like, and so I get over to the decks, and I'm just like, what are you, like, shouting? Like, what are you playing? What is this? It's a serpent with feet. Serpent with feet. And I was like... I was trying to give myself visual like memory maps so that I definitely wasn't going to forget by the time I woke up in the morning. I knew I needed to remember Serpent with Feet. So, and I was like, there was, no, I was, there was nothing to write it down on. I was just yeah. in the middle of this party. And then I was like giving myself all these like riddles to try and like force myself to remember yeah. that there's something I need to remember tomorrow and, it, and it's Serpent with Feet. Anyway, like obviously I forgot. And... Um, I don't know, like six months went past and my girlfriend, she she actually became obsessed with this one song. And I was like, what is that that you keep playing? And she was like, Serpent With Feet. And I was like, do, 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 do. Like, like all of the connected dots suddenly just like, things started exploding where I was like, I know this, this is important for me. I've given myself the task to remember mm-hmm. this name. Mm-hmm. There was a little time in my life when we were playing Serpent With Feet like every day, the whole album, every day. But it's the kind of music that it rewards that kind of mm. fixation. You know, it's not like, it didn't become tiring. It just became enriching. It's and interesting, that thing of repetitive playing. Yeah. And I think Nick Hornby said, we listen to songs repetitively to solve them. Like, a great yeah. song has a kind of mystery. <laughs> I mean, it might be the most popular song ever, but there's something just slightly mysterious and you have to keep going through it. And I'm not tired of Four Ethers, which has such lyrical complexity and handles all sorts of really complex things it's a kind of breakup song but it's this how to be felt and seen isn't it yeah i feel like the the way that they write about desire and intimacy it's almost impossible to write originally about intimacy how could it be possible that after however many millions of poems and songs about intimacy, yeah. how could it be possible to suddenly hear somebody expressing what feels like an original yeah. thought about yeah. it? Yeah. But it is. And Serpent With Feet does it. When I, when I hear them discuss, and more importantly, melodically take on the inexpressible yeah. element of intimacy and queer intimacy, like especially, you know, for me it's, it's profound to hear somebody sing so honestly, so openly. Yeah you say about like the kind of howl to be felt it's like it's what's beautiful about it is like the orchestration of these I don't know like it's like string it's like loads mm. of strings it's like it's orchestral but in a way that's um that's, that's what I mean it's original like strings have been played to death like how can we have a string movement that doesn't feel mm. like so played out mm. like it is almost impossible to imagine that when the strings come in it feels original mm. but it does mm. 
And that's about intention and it's about integrity. It's about artistic endeavor, mm. being like completely in tune with themselves. Mm. That's how I take it. I don't mm. know. I don't know much about who produces them or mm. who they write with, but mm. the feeling that I get mm. is um, of integrity. Yeah. Babe, it's cool with me that you want to die. And I'm not going to stop you if you try. in my belly has started growing Your name is about as easy to remember as the four ethers and who the hell knows the four ethers Like it takes quite a lot for an artist to allow themselves to occupy such a kind of bombastic sonic yeah. space. Yeah. You know, like there is so much grandiosity to it that it's just commanding. It's like this person knows exactly what they're saying and they're doing it over this like mm. fanfare. Mm. <laughs> like, it's beautiful. Have you met them? No, I never met them. I'd love to meet them. Mm. But also at the same time, I've met them in their work. The work is the thing. There's so much that I get from from their example in the world, you know? Yeah. Do you feel that striving for intimacy and candour in your work, it's a road filled with hazards because you don't want to go into sentiment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But <laughs> the way you can, I mean, particularly in your poetry, but also with something like People's Faces, you mm. can hit a register which feels to me really naked, yeah, I feel galvanised by the performance of Serpent With Feet. I feel galvanised to go into my truth because I feel them so clearly in theirs. And it's powerful. I, yeah. I find that example deeply inspiring and impressive. Yeah. I'm just like, I'm like, obviously that person has their own struggles and yeah. who are we to know from the outside looking in how difficult it is for that person to, yeah. to be able to proclaim themselves with so much strength. Yeah. I don't know the toll it takes on them, but it's feels to me like permission to be strong in my weakness in yeah. the in the parts of me that are that are sore you know it's cool with me that you want to die and I'm not going to stop you if you try but the hole in my belly has started growing <laughs> it makes me want to cry yeah it's so beautiful yeah the that's this is what I'm saying like the struggle to express in order to give the permission of others to feel their own strength mm. is a really hardcore struggle. Mm. That's like... <sighs> and the crying you might do when you read those lyrics. That's where song began, didn't it? I mean, it began through lamentation. People gathered, like when you went on stage after your friend mm. died, like to actually try and process through song and word. Grief, yeah, sadness. Like, yeah, where have they gone, like... The people sitting on the coast in the in the north of England, singing songs about the fact that the fishermen haven't come home. Yeah. But just to say, you were talking about uh, hitting that register mm. in the poetry and in and in songs like People's Faces. It's definitely something where I feel almost a little bit squeamish about revealing too much or 
not so much in, in people's faces, but in the poetry. And then I remember the, this boldness of owning your story. Yeah. And what that offers to somebody going through their own crises yeah. of owning their own stories. You know, yeah. it's like I have to remember that, I'll put it this way, there has to be a reason for the poem to exist. It mm. can't just be in the collection because you wrote it. Mm. That's not good enough reason to put something out mm. into the world. Just because it came out of, of your brain mm. or your body, it doesn't mean it deserves mm. or, or merits sitting there in a collection with other poems. Mm. But by the time something is published or something's recorded and released, it's gone through so much rigorous scrutiny of what purpose are you serving as a part of this whole? Is mm. there a reason for you to be here? Like... And because I've gone through that process with it, it makes it easier for me to say, okay, mm. even though this is revealing in mm. some ways, it's offering. Mm. It's not exposing, it's offering. It's, it offers something. It doesn't just strip away. There's something new happening when yeah. you allow yourself to be, yeah, naked. Have there been poems that you've just kept for yourself and not put out there because yeah. that reason isn't strong enough. Hundred, like hundred percent. Like when I write a poetry book, what you're what you're left with at the end of the process is say forty poems. That would have been two hundred and fifty. Yeah. You know, I'm in a process at the minute of writing a collection, and it's like, am I attached to this poem because I think that the words are cool, or because I know what it took to write mm. it, or because I wrote it in the middle of the night and it made me feel better, or am I attached to this poem because it needs to be here. It's serving mm. a purpose. There's a reason for it to belong with its mm. siblings in this collection. I'm going through exactly that moment. And the same with the novel. The most exhilarating part of it was just deleting 40,000 words. Mm. And just being like, these words don't need to be here. Mm. I needed to write them, mm. but you don't need them. Mm. I needed them. Mm. And there's a different... It's like a kind of amazing process. Do you feel responsible for all the abandoned children poems, the, the ones that you're going to, like a goddess, sort of send off and they'll never appear? No. No. I feel like, thank you. I'm sorry I couldn't support you in becoming beautiful enough to merit existing. Mm. I have to just leave you over there. Well, they exist, but they don't exist in the public domain. Yeah. So are they poems? If they're just sitting there and no one's ever read them. For, for me, the whole thing about artwork is that it has to be engaged with a poem isn't a poem just because I've thought it up it's yeah. a poem if it's yeah. if it's met by somebody and yeah. the meaning comes through it then yeah. it's a poem I've set myself this task which I think is maybe important to say because it could be inspiring for people outside of poetry and stuff it's like there is a temptation to go back and like mine work that never saw the light of day mm. there's a temptation when you're feeling low when mm. you don't believe that you've got what it takes to come up with a new idea mm. to go back and start mm. pulling out of the mine but actually I've set myself this like propulsion forwards that I've always had since this all this stuff started picking up which is that believe that you will be able to create more never go back never go back and take what didn't work last time and try yeah. and rework it just if it's not happening today, it's not happening today, but it might happen tomorrow. And like, you have to be set on forwards. Mm. The horizon, you have to go mm. that way because then new things, new things will spring up. Mm. Otherwise you just get bogged down in trying to like decipher old code mm. that doesn't relate to where you're at. So mm. I've made that mistake so many times. I've gone against my own desire to keep going forwards and I've like unearthed old ideas mm. and tried to make them work. And it never works. 
So going back to a couple of centuries before, 1790, a fellow South Londoner, mm. William Blake, wrote The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. How did Blake find you? How did you find Blake? Was it an English class at Thomas Tallis or <laughs> no. something at Brit School or what? How did I... F- I think I knew about Blake from... What are the, the little short poems, the Songs, Songs of, of Innocence? Songs of Innocence Experience, yeah. Yeah, I think they probably had come into my sphere, but they hadn't, they hadn't rocked me, you know. I wasn't solved yeah. by them. But when did the marriage come into my life? I think I was like 20. It might have been at Goldsmiths, yeah. the library at Goldsmiths. Yeah. Why did Blake have the purchase? You know, why not Wordsworth, Sylvia Plath, whoever? I'll tell you why. Okay, so when I discovered Blake, oh my God, like, when I discovered this particular poem, this book, it it was a time in my life when these kind of messages are, they justify certain behaviours that you're in, you know. The road of excess leads to the palace of wisdom. Mm. Like, that justified me being in the state that I was in. Or, like, soon a murder, an infant in its cradle, the nurse, unacted desire. Mm. You know, at the time, I was, like, hopelessly in love with a woman who would become my wife, but she was in a relationship with somebody else, and I just couldn't abandon my mm. desires. And so, like, mm. because of the kind of place that I was in at the time, I found Blake to be, like, <laughs> my prophet telling me that everything that I felt about energy mm. was right and everything that I felt about the stiflingness of academic study mm. of the creative force was mm. wrong. Like, he justified everything that I naturally felt, mm. that I was struggling to find the words to articulate. Mm. All of this stuff was going on. And then, and then I discovered that he was a visionary, that he saw angels. Like, I was having visions. Mm. Like, when I was a kid, I used to have these visions. And, like, suddenly here was a person who was visited by these figures that would like be on his stairs mm. in his home when he was living in, in Soho and and then he created this whole mythology around who these figures were mm. and what they was trying to tell him mm. and and then he was rejected by the establishment mm. he was dismissed as a madman and a drunk and at mm. the time I couldn't get published I couldn't get a record deal mm. I wasn't getting any work I you know like there was all this stuff where I was like he just came into my sphere and gave me all this like um, kinship. Also, I was full of arrogance at the time. I was 20 years old or whatever, and suddenly there was this example of a person who was so powerful and, and also like ridiculed. Mm. And it galvanized me, it made me mm. feel stronger. Like there had been a few moments where I tried to get certain gigs or I really wanted to get my music moving and it just, it just wasn't happening, mm. you know? And like, it was one of those things where I, you know, go further into what you know to be true. Mm. And just yeah, the fact that he took on the heroes of the day, Swedenborg or whatever, you know, all these mm. people that were like really... And like now you might read it and think, wow, he was kind of bitter. But back then I read it and I was like, I just I thought he was so right on. Mm. <laughs> so you're drawing a line really from starting with Michael Jordan as a kind of renegade, almost outlaw spirit. <laughs> then you're coming through Serpent with Feet who, you know... Uh, black gay choir boy from Baltimore coming through and putting all his subjectivity out there. Mm. Then back to Blake, who has the same sort of outcast lack mm. of belonging 
Yeah. And that's really firing you up. And, yeah. you know, now, sort of 15 years later, he's, is he still with you like a sort of inner mentor? Yeah, yeah, he is. So I have this relationship with Blake where when I was younger, I was living in Peckham at the time, and you could get this bus, the Bendy bus. You could get on the back doors of the bus, and you wouldn't have to pay for a ticket, and it went all the way to Pimlico to where the Tate Britain is. 36? Yeah, 436, yeah. 36. yeah. And it, so you get on that bus, and um, there was a little tiny room. You have to walk through the whole of the gallery, mm. you go like all through all the main galleries, mm. you've got to go up all these little stairs that mm. are kind of out, the, they're not the big staircase, you have to go to the edge mm. and then up these little stairs and you get to this tiny room at the top. It's like really, really remote little room and all of the walls are painted midnight blue, you know, dark blue, because of the delicacy mm. of the pigment on the, on the paintings. Mm. This was like the Blake room, it was tiny. I used to just go in there and just basically just bore my eyes out. She used to mm. cry. Like that. I looked at his pictures of Elohim creating Adam where there's like this God and mm. Adam is like being accosted by these spirits of good and evil. And, and there were just these like pictures of these humans in, in this like mythological mm. landscape of like kind of England, but like also kind of hell, like, mm. you know, and, and like, it was just this small, quiet room. No one was ever in there. Mm. And I would go in there. I would take people, special people in my life, I would take them there to show mm. them that, like, this thing, this like church that I had. Mm. When I think of Blake, it's like that. It's like in mm. this moment where I, it's given me so much. Mm. But then, weirdly, he had this huge exhibition, mm. you know, this massive thing recently where they made, it's like a six-room exhibition yeah. of all his work. And I walked in there and it left me... It left me cold a little bit. It was like, the, it, it didn't do the same thing. It wasn't quite as direct, the communication between me and Blake. You know, Blake saw angels in Peckham Rye, but mm. because of the, we're talking about this mm. geological connection to where I'm from, to the ground, the fact that somebody on this soil, this poet, this visionary, this thinker, walked, walked for miles around London, like visited by angels, <laughs> watching people breaking out of jails, this is the other thing I could talk about Blake all day. You see these figures in his paintings that are like these people, like naked, there's fire, they're shackled at the feet. This is literally what he saw. Yeah. He was walking out of his house. He would go on these long, long walks down to Lambeth, which at the time would have been green. That would have been the end of the city. And he would walk past the clink, you know, and mm. there'd be people, the jail would be mm. on fire and the prisoners would be escaping, mm. all chained at the feet. Mm. And that yeah. just, just gone into his head and it's yeah. come out. And um, that thing about how you take what you've learned about mythology and what you see every day and what yeah. you know to be true about your own experience. Mm. That is also how Blake made his work. Do so, you think there was something about where you were getting on the 436, it was your room at the back of the Tate Britain that you had to go down all these corridors. It was just a little room. Whereas 20 years later, massive sponsor, massive gallery, it's somehow not your special thing. It's been made into a kind of yeah. almost corporate, I mean, fantastic, let's give everyone the access to it, but perhaps it didn't feel so willfully found and cherished as your thing. Yeah, it was like something like, you know that thing that you feel when a band that you loved before they were famous and you saw them with 10 people in a room and then they become really huge and you feel like, yeah, they're not yours anymore. Yeah. It was something like that of like, is my connection still worth as much to me if all these other people are here connecting as well. And yeah. that's, I don't normally feel like that about artwork, but I think just, I think my, 
experience of that small room was it was so dark. Like all of the lights mm. were so dim, the walls mm. were dark. And it was really hushed. And then in the, the recent exhibition, it was really bright. And it just like... You I needed think, to sequester in this sort of Blake womb. Yeah. Where you could cry. There'd yeah. not be lots of people. Because I sat down. And, you know, in the, they have like a bench in the gallery. I sat down to just be with this painting that I was looking at. And there was loads of people yeah. moving around. I just wanted to be with the painting, you know. Yeah. And I lay down to just... I was just trying to be with it. I had my eyes shut and then I lay down. And then the security guard came over like, are you feeling unwell? I said, no, I'm just, I'm just listening to the painting. Like, and then he obviously thought that I was, I don't know, like weird or shouldn't be there and kind of moved me along. And it just wasn't, you know, just it's like when everybody is queuing to look at something, you have to keep moving because you're in this like inspiration factory. Yeah. Everybody needs to have their time. And I understand that. My relationship with Blake is so deeply felt. It's like the fact that I couldn't sit without being moved on. Yeah. You brought in, um, in the opening of Brand New Ancients, uh, all deities reside in the human breast, mm. which of course comes from the marriage of heaven and the hell. And I'd love to hear you. I mean, you probably know it. I, I printed off a few of my favourite little yeah, aphorisms, do. proverbs of hell. Yeah. But... Um, I'd love to just hear some of it in your voice and stop if you want or whatever. Yeah. This is what I mean. Like, when I discovered him, it was like he was giving voice to things that I hadn't dared to articulate myself because I didn't didn't deserve to have these lofty thoughts, you know, at the time. I didn't deserve to be able to qualify my belief that all deities reside in the human breast because what did I know? I was 20 years old. Everyone kept telling me how little I knew. And then... William Blake says it, and it, you feel yourself justified. Yeah. yeah. So he says, without contraries is no progression. Attraction and repulsion, reason and energy, love and hate are necessary to human existence. Yeah, I mean, there feels like a really vivid line when you read that thing about the contraries. Yeah. That blew my mind in The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, where... He's really permissive about allowing our shadow, our light, and it, all deities reside there. But I, that you have to be careful with him, though, because he can say some pretty intolerable things about like types of people. He dismisses people who are sheep-like in spirit. You know, he says, the eagle never lost so much time as when he submitted to learn of the crow. Mm. Obviously, he's a wounded person. Mm. He's... He has this genius and it hasn't been able to manifest or come out. So some things that he says are from a place you can feel of bitterness. Yes. And you just have to, I have to be careful because it can build you up into this like, oh yeah, well I'm the eagle and all these people that disagree (laughs) with me are the crow. Or like, you know, he has all this mythology about the fox and the Mm. horse and, and I just, I have to take that. Yeah, the horses of instruction. Yeah. The tigers of wrath are wiser than the horses of instruction. What he's setting up is that he's the tiger. He's like yeah. the wrathful tiger with the real energy, mm. the raw spirit, and the horses of instruction. So who are they? They must be the other poets who are like, they, this must be Wordsworth and all these famous poets who are getting all the commissions, you mm. know? Or are the horses of instruction people that just follow religion? He had all this stuff about religion. Yeah. But for me, it's like my philosophy splits from his there because mm. I don't believe in that like ravaging people who are unlike you yeah. energetically. I don't yeah. believe in that. No. Uh, so I love him, and then there's elements of me that's like, ah, oh, I can't get behind this. 
But he also says, I mean, that thing about without contraries is no progression. Like, when I was discovering this text, I was in so many contraries. Yeah. I was in so much difficulty. And then, you know, you hear it so often. People tell you that you have to go through the fire, you know, you have mm. to go through a hard time. Da, da, da. But just for some reason, hearing it spoken like that, without contraries, there's no progression. It was comforting. Yes. He says, he who desires but acts not breeds pestilence. Expect poison from the standing water. And later he says, um, if the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear to man as it is, infinite. For man has closed himself up till he sees all things through narrow chinks of his cavern. I mean, that just sounds like a bit of Kate Tempest. Yeah, for sure. Obviously, I ripped him (laughs) off. But the thing is, like, you know when you are confronted with truth in poetry, that feeling? Poetry does it so well. It's why the Bible's written in poetry. It's Mm. it's why we we use Poetic Register Mm. to talk about deeply felt truth. Mm. Could that 15-year-old... Wiping the tears from her face, having had an encounter with Blake. Could she tell... I was in my 20s. I was a... All right, let's say you're 22. Could she tell her cool friends who might be listening to Wu-Tang or NWA, oh, and I also like Blake? Was, that, yeah. was there um, synchronicity and connection there? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, like, everybody knew... Everybody knew that I was different. I was always different to everybody. When I first, I actually spoke to my friend about this recently, that the first time he met me, the guy that I was in, like, a rap crew with three other guys and me, and I was a kid, and this was, like, the formative, this was my education, really, in, in lyricism. It was my daily practice, and it was really exciting. But this very inspiring rapper in my life, who I met at the time, he remembered meeting me for the first time. He said, I was just sat in a corner of our friend's room, and I was just reading. I don't remember that being the case, but I remember I always would have a book with me. And I remember always I would just maybe even just be in like in literally in a rave and be reading, mm. like, like listening to the yeah. music. But I'd go and find a little corner and yeah. I'd just be reading. I was always that way that I wanted to invest fully into what, my creativity. Mm. And if we were together and we were rapping and showing rhymes, then I would want to go fully into it. Yeah. But at the same time... You know, I'd want to talk to your mum about, mm. like, what she knew from her life. Mm. Like, that was, mm. like, I was always the kind of young person that wanted to engage. I wanted to engage in conversations that had substance. Mm. Do you still feel like that now? I hope so. At that particular time of your life, so much is happening to your brain, isn't mm. it? Like, all of the connections mm. and synapses. So you're just starving all mm. the time to learn... But would you allow yourself strangeness in a social situation? Or do you feel you have to perform and take responsibility? Yeah, I suppose that things change once you get recognition. You lose the possibility to be like, oh, that's just Kate, she's cool. She's ours, like, don't mm. worry about her. Mm. Like, that, that was basically how it was when mm. I would move around these spaces with my friend G, who's like a brother to me. He would basically give permission for me to just be on whatever I was on. And then once you get recognition, you become visible, obviously. Yeah. People then have an idea of how you might behave. or mm. And then I can feel a bit trapped because mm. if, if somebody has had an experience with my poetry, 
and they want to tell me about it, obviously I want to listen, but that exchange is not about me, it's mm. about them. Mm. If, I want, if I see a rapper that I love, an artist that I love, I want to go up and tell them about what they've done for me. It's not about them, it's mm. about me mm. saying like, you don't understand, I need to give you this, what I feel is a, is a gift, but actually it's not a gift. Mm. It's about your own need to be recognised by this person who's recognised you. But what it does mean is that what for you is just an everyday encounter becomes for someone else an anecdote. So you just have to be careful that mm. you, you you can't be strange. You can't yeah. be true to how you're feeling. You can't give yourself an opportunity for transgressing because then a mythology builds up. Yeah. But then at the same time, what I'm trying to learn is like, fuck it, like, just relax. Yeah. It doesn't It's not like, I'm not trying to be a politician. It doesn't matter if mm. one day I'm pissed off and I say, sorry, I can't talk to you right now. Mm. But there has been moments like where I've just been like, yeah, it it, it creates um, a vulnerability. Mm. Yeah. Whereas my strangeness used to be my strength. It used to be like a protection because people would be like, oh, who's that? <laughs> I think that's why it's so lovely to hear you talk about things you love, mm. i.e. you're not having to get saturated by somebody's needs of you and what they find about you just to hear the young Kate respond yeah. to basketball yeah. and a great song and uh, yeah. old poetry is just so beautiful yeah it's really cool thanks for um, giving me the space thank you What I Love was created and hosted by me Ian Rickson. The theme music is by PJ Harvey. This episode was recorded at the Harold Pinter Theatre and is produced by Sarah Murray for Storyglass. And during our conversation, Kay and I discussed The Last Dance, directed by Jason Hehir and produced by ESPN Films and Netflix, Four Ethers by Serpent with Feet on Triangle Records, and The Marriage of Heaven and Hell by William Blake. Thank you so much for listening and see you next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.